Okay. So, where shall we begin? This is... This is... <laughs> A big part of what I do, as you've probably figured out. And maybe it looks not that hard some of the time because typically I don't really, uh, you know, look at notes. I come here and just share my heart. And maybe in some ways it looks like the easiest thing in the world. I just get up here and talk. And it's like, what are we paying this guy for? Um, it's actually pretty hard. Not this part. This part actually isn't that hard. This is where I do come up and share my heart. But the hard part is like the time between the time that comes up to this part. Everything that is gone into my mind and my heart and preparing to come up here and just speak. And so what I do and when I advise people who are preachers and those who would aspire to be preachers, you know, if there's one piece of advice I would give, it is seek the Lord. Cry out to him. Look to him. Uh, do you want your labor to matter? Cry out to God. Ask for his help. Ask that you would be able to be led by him and be used by him and this doesn't apply only to pastors and preachers. This applies to you in your daily life, in your daily work, wherever God has you, whether it's being a mom or a teacher or a banker or a student or whatever you do, whatever providence has led you to do with your hands. If you want your life to matter, if you want your labor to mean something in the long run, what do the scriptures say? Whatever you do, commit it to the Lord and you will succeed. It will bear fruit. Be looking to him. Be crying out to him. Even as a pastor, it would be sadly very easy for me to go about my labor trying to teach the Bible even without looking to God, looking and seeking his face. Because if God is not God is not first in our life, and we're not living for him. Everything we do is in vain. It will, it will pass on like the wind. So anyways, um, as it often is early in the week, I know all of you are coming here, and I don't know what I'm talking about, and that can be a little nerve-wracking, and sometimes it comes to me easier than others. I know that we're doing this series on the book of John, so I read John chapter 8 a bunch of times, and I didn't feel a whole lot of anything. Read it a bunch more times. Started to have some thoughts, but they weren't really coming together as it is. So I left to go pray. And then I came back, and there was a song playing on my Spotify, Bruce Springsteen, got that from my dad, he loves the boss, <laughs> a song, you probably know it, plays on the radio, Glory Days, you know that song, 
glory days, they'll pass you by, glory days. And in the song, Bruce is singing first about this friend he had in high school who was an all-star pitcher. And all the glory that went with that, you know, the attention of the pretty girls and the, the crowd that goes wild. And he tells the story of how he ran into this guy years later at a roadside bar. And the guy just wanted to talk about that. Just wanted to talk about those days when he was loved by everyone. You know, and the chorus goes, these glory days will pass you by. And then he tells a story of a girl he knew in high school. And she was the prettiest thing, apparently. And she had the, you know, the all the boys wanted her and tells the story how, you know, she got older and he would go visit her sometimes and now she's long divorced and a single mom and she tells him that when she feels like crying, instead she laughs and she thinks about those glory days. And once more, you know, Bruce sings, glory days will pass you by and they'll leave you with nothing, just glory days. And I, I listen to this song after going on this prayer walk and reading chapter 8 a bunch of times and letting my mind wander. These glory days will pass you by. They'll pass you by, these glory days. And then moments later, I read the news and I see that 45 years ago today, well, this was Tuesday, so 45 years ago Tuesday, the king died. Um, by the king, I mean, of course, Elvis Presley. Uh, 45 years ago, this last Tuesday, the song is still in my head, like, the glory days will pass you by. 45 years ago, the king died, and talk about glory days. When Elvis was in his 20s, there was nobody who was loved more than the world than Elvis Presley when he was in his 20s. He would go on tour, and all these people would buy tickets, and they couldn't even listen to the music if you go to the tour because the screaming of the girls was so loud. Even his bandmates, they said, we couldn't even follow. We had to follow the shaking of his body because we couldn't hear the music. That's how he would lead the band. Talk about the most loved person ever, Elvis Presley in his 20s. But the glory days pass you by, don't they? Because history sadly remembers two Elvises. In 1967, very callously and cruelly, the Washington Post declared Elvis is fat. And a year later, in 1968, Elvis died. And whenever you read about it, they always have to mention he was found next to the toilet. Really just almost communicating how far the mighty have fallen. And the song is still ringing in my head. These glory days will pass you by. These glory days will pass you by. And I've been reading a book. I've been reading a book recently that I just came across randomly. And the name of the book is The Denial of Death. It was written by this guy named Ernest Becker. And in sad irony, um, the book won the Pulitzer Prize. But he never saw it because he died before the book was awarded the Pulitzer Prize. 
But the book, uh, The Denial of Death, he makes a really interesting claim. He says that all human ambition, all human ambition comes from an internalized realization that we're going to die and something that we push away, push away, and it manifests in what he calls immortality projects, like trying to do something that will last forever because you know your time is short. So all this human ambition is trying to do something to, that in your mind will be a legacy for you or for your people or for your family or for your nation. You're fighting against this. And then he goes on to say more than that, not just like our immortality projects. He says much of the like extreme pleasure seeking in life and even like, like love, like falling in love, the things that people will run to. He says so much of that is also trying to find refuge and hiding from the impending existential dread of knowing that our death is coming. Instead of living in that realization because it's too dreadful for our minds to wrap ourselves around, instead of living in that very true reality that we're going to die, we go and we run and we try to find great distractions in pleasure and even in falling in love. All this is on my mind, and I'm reading John chapter 8, and I'm listening to Bruce Springsteen, and I'm feeling like perhaps the Lord has a message for us. You know, I've sure sought his, I've sure sought him. Lord, what do you, would you have me say? And all this is merging together. And it sounds a lot like what God told the prophet Isaiah to say. Um. Chapter 40, it goes like this. Uh, the Lord says to Isaiah, cry out. And Isaiah says, what should I cry? All people are grass. And their glory like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. There's a message here that needs to be cried out. Your life and that which you strive for to create joy and glory, all people are grass and the grass withers and your glory like the flowers that fall. Kind of depressing. That's not the end of the story of the Bible, you know. But it's something that needs to be cried out. Because if you are not awakened to what this means, you're going to miss the great message of the scriptures. Uh, glory days will pass you by. But there is a glory that won't. And that's what we need to see. And my prayer is, through the power of the Holy Spirit, it's what we will behold this morning. Father God, awaken our minds, awaken our hearts to turn from temporary things, to turn from vain idols, to turn to you. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.
Okay, John chapter 8. That's what we're doing. Uh, it's a long chapter. We're not going to cover all of it. A couple highlights. We're going to start at the beginning. First 11 verses go like this. It's probably familiar. Maybe not, but I'll read it regardless. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him, but Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, and the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Okay. Uh, this is a well-known portion of scripture. And if you really love this, I have some potential bad news for you. It's probably not scripture. <laughs> um, as in... Uh, it, it probably wasn't written by John, and in your Bible, it probably says that much. There's probably a little footnote that says, it might even have this in brackets, and there might be a footnote that says, uh, this portion of scripture is not in most of the oldest manuscripts. And if you do a little research, you'll see there's good reason to question whether this was originally part of John's book. Uh, without getting into really the scholarly Dialogue. It may may have been. It may have been. But without getting into the scholarly scholarly dialogue, I'll also tell you there is good reason to think that this event actually happened. But it might not be scripture. What do we do with it? Well, the good news is there's no new information here. As in, there's nothing in this portion of scripture that you can't get from other portions of scripture. So we can look at it as really just a good illustration, whether it happened or not, whether it's scripture or not, we can still gather truths from it because, once more, the truths can be gathered elsewhere from the scriptures that we know without question to be indeed scripture. So, um, because this is such a well-known and beloved passage, uh, I thought I'd at least say a couple things about it. Uh, Jesus is hanging out, you know, doing his thing, uh, teaching, and people show up, with this woman, they say she was caught in adultery, and right away we can see, we can understand this is, these are people without, these are people with ill motives. They're not actually coming to Jesus for wisdom. They're coming to challenge him, to test him, to put a trap before him. They know about his reputation as being one who is compassionate. They also know that he believes in the Old Testament scriptures and He's with, you know, there's people that also believe in the Old Testament scriptures, and we see that Moses did indeed command for the punishment for adultery in certain circumstances to be death. They bring this woman. There's all sorts of questions. She was caught in the act of adultery that typically involves two people. You know, uh, where, is the, where is the man? 
Very good question. It's not answered here. Why is this the case? Is it just a double standard? Probably. On the other hand, it's possible that they brought her by herself to make a more sympathetic person that people would feel sorry for because that's what they want. They want this to be like a, what are you going to do, Jesus? Are you going to command for her to be stoned in line with Moses? Or are you going to stand opposed to Moses? So this is a, a trap. But before we even go down this, before we even look at this, I think it's fair to ask the question, as compassion is something I hope we all acknowledge is a good thing, and stoning someone uh, for something like this, I think we also hopefully know that that is not God's call for us in the church. So what's going on here? Why did Moses say it? Did God change his mind? What's going on? Jesus is the exact representation of the character of God. It's Hebrews chapter 1. All the fullness of God dwells in Jesus. In Jesus, we see the face of God Almighty. But in the Old Testament, the scriptures also communicate an aspect of God. Not the full, complete person. The fullness of his character is in the face of Jesus. But in the Old Testament scriptures, you do have something about God being communicated. What is being communicated when God says the, the sinner shall die? What's being communicated? It's something we should hear. It's something that we shouldn't just be like, oh, that's Old Testament. No, we should hear what God is trying to say. Because there's a truth here that you also see in the New Testament. This idea of like death... Um, you could definitely see it as judgment, and it is. You could see it as punishment, and it is. But there's something more going on here. There's something else being communicated. It's a purging. As in, God's people, God's special people are going to be holy. Purge the evil from among you. Let me ask you this, for those of you who believe in heaven. Because heaven is going to be here on earth. I don't know if you know the whole end of the Bible. But there is going to be a, a heavenly city here on earth. And God's people will dwell in it forever. Quick question. Is there going to be liars there? Okay. Are people still going to lie in heaven? Is there going to be adultery? Is there going to be sexual immorality of any kind? Is that going to happen in God's city? No, of course not. Of course not. In heaven, those things aren't going to exist. And you go to the end of the Bible, uh, the, the very end, Revelation chapter 21, 22, the heavenly city, okay? It's coming down. And then the very next verses are outside, Outside is everything unclean, you know, the sexual, immoral, all liars. You know, it, they're, they're not in. That, that doesn't happen in heaven, and that's what's being communicated. God's people are going to be holy. He's going to set apart a holy people. And some of you are probably, like, freaking out, like, all liars? Uh-oh. Uh-oh. There's more to the story, as we're going to see. Like, there's more here. This woman is not stoned. Because there's more to the story. The fullness of God is seen in the face of Jesus. But that's not something that you should just ignore. You should hear what God's trying to say. Because it's all connected here. And so anyways, they bring this woman to Jesus. Should we stone her? And according to the word of Moses. And, well, uh, Jesus. It says that he started writing something. They ask him this question. 
And he just ignores them. He just sits down, starts writing. So Jesus, you going to give us an answer or what? You know, he's writing, says, he's writing something on the ground. And people have wondered, what did he write? It doesn't say here what he wrote. I suppose people have their theories. I have my theory. It's just a theory. But I'll share, you, share with you what my theory is. Something happened. Something happened that made these people realize, because when he said, whoever's without sin, cast the first stone, something happened that made these people realize, that's not me, okay? I suspect that Jesus, being God, started to write down the secrets of people's hearts. That's just my, my theory. He wrote down something that made them realize, uh-oh, <laughs> You know, that's just a theory. Maybe just started listing various sins. I don't know. Maybe wrote something totally unrelated and my theory is way off. Either way, Jesus said, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And they all, one by one, left. And Jesus said, where are they? Where are those people who would condemn you? She said, they're gone. He said, I, I don't condemn you either. Leave this life of sin. I mean... We can see a lot here, whether this story actually happened or not. We can see a lot uh, about the character of God and what Jesus is trying to do. And it actually fits in well when you keep reading. Uh, this poor woman, what, uh, what would have motivated her? The same thing that motivates all of us in sin. And if Ernest Becker, the author of The Denial of Death, if he was right... Probably what motivated her was she probably fell in love and she probably felt like this love of hers was a great distraction from the hardness of life, the, the existential dread that lies in all of us. Falling in love was a way for her to just forget about everything that is right and, well, that's where sin often comes from, isn't it? Anyways, let's just keep reading, and we'll, we'll come back to this idea, perhaps. Um, like I said, we can't do the whole chapter, but let's go to the next verse. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And in saying this, he's saying something he will be saying more of. You're walking in darkness. In darkness. It's your, your life. It's all following illusions. You don't see. I came so that you would see, and natural question is, how, how are they living in darkness? What's going on? What's, what's dark about my life and my viewpoint? And you keep reading, and you see he tells them various things. He says, you don't know where I came from. You don't know where I'm going. You don't know my father. What he's saying is, you don't know heaven. You don't know the ways of heaven. You don't know the essence of heaven. And you don't know God. You don't know heaven, and you don't know God. That's how you're blind. And it's kind of like this. These people, these are people who think they're spiritual. And what Jesus is saying here, and it's going to come out more clear as we keep going, what he's saying is, you're dreaming. You're, you, wake up. Wake up because you're in a dream. You're, you're living a dream that's fake, and I want you to wake up. And so he's going to say things 
that is going to attempt to wake people up from a stupor of blindness. Wake up, wake up, wake up. And what he says next, we're going to jump to verse 24. He says, I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am he. You will indeed die in your sins. And what Jesus is saying here is the message that Isaiah was given from God. And it's the message that, you know, Bruce Springsteen has been singing to all of us that I began with. This idea, it's going to end. It's going to end. All flesh is grass. All people are grass in their glory like the flowers of the field and the grass withers and the flowers fall. It's all going to end. Even your highest glory, even your highest hope, even the love that you think that you found in this world apart from God, it's going to end. And then what will you have? Glory days will pass you by and leave you with nothing. Wake up is what he's saying. Wake up, wake up. You're going to die if you don't hear me. That's what he's saying. I told you, you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am he. You need to stop and look to me is what Jesus is saying. Wake up. Um, Let's jump ahead to verse 31. To the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Okay, we got to break this part down a little bit. Pay attention. It starts with Jesus. It says, To the Jews who had believed in him. Now this is very important, especially for those who are church people. There's a message in John. John, book of John. Famous words. I mean, all, all my kids know them. Even my, my tiniest ones. Well, Charlotte, maybe not yet. But she'll know it soon. John 3.16. Josh was just saying yesterday. Let's open the Bible. What should we read? John 3.16. They just like to recite it. Everyone knows John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. What does God require of you? Believe in him. What is the destiny of those who believe in him? Eternal life, knowledge of God, forever and ever, believing in him, believing in him. That's a big message of John. I wrote this book. The reason you wrote the book is so that we would believe. Something also in John that you don't want to miss. Not all believing is really believing. Not all believing is the saving belief that John is talking about. And that's a point that John makes in lots of different ways, especially here in verse 31. To the Jews who had believed in him. Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Do you really believe? Say you believe, okay, you do believe in some fashion, but do you really believe? What's the difference between those who believe and those who have a pseudo-belief, a fake belief? It just means that you listen to him. His word finds its place in your heart. Your heart doesn't turn away. Just says, Lord, I want to hear you. Help me hear you. Help me understand. The sinner says, no, I don't want to listen. I don't want to listen. I don't want to listen. I'll take the salvation part. Yeah, sure. But I don't want to listen. I don't want to listen. I'm sorry. That's not how it works. It doesn't work that way. We receive God, the knowledge of God. It means a heart that says, Lord, show me. Help me. If there's sin, change me. 
if you're really my disciple, then you hold to my teachings, what Jesus is saying. And then he says this, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they take offense at this. There is something, let's just be honest here, there is something offensive about the Christian message. There are a lot of things Christians have sadly done and, and continue to do in some ways that's hugely offensive, and it hurts the gospel mission because Christians are being offensive and have offended people for lots of reasons that they should not have. But there is one aspect of the Christian religion that is going to continue to offend. Uh, the Bible calls it, you know, the offense of the cross. And it's really something this. It's basically a message that says, you are sick, you are spiritually blind, and you need to be saved. What? What are you saying? Are you saying there's something wrong with me? Yes. Okay? All of us. We cannot save ourselves. We need him to save us. That's the offense. You're not good enough. You're not good. Okay? That's the message. We deserve the death that Jesus died. The cross is a message to humanity that says, you're not good. But it's also a message to humanity that says, but you're loved. And this is how much you're loved. This is what you deserve. Hear that. The cross. But this is what my love has purchased for you. You see, there is an offensive nature to that for the one who wants to live their own way and feels justified in doing so. Um, and these fellows that Jesus are talking to, they're offended by this. So this is, you're going to know the truth and the truth will set you free. And what they say is, we're Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we should be set free? And you really got to hear what they're saying here because it's kind of interesting. We've never been slaves of anyone. Okay, maybe you don't know the Old Testament, but if you do, you know that this is really not true and everyone knows this isn't true. I mean, the, the book of Exodus, the story of them being slaves, uh, the time of exile, you know, the time of them being slaves. It's all over the Old Testament. They were slaves many times. And even now, they're occupied by the Romans. So what are these Jews getting at when they say, we've never been slaves of anyone? What they're saying is, spiritually, spiritually, we've never been saved. We've been set free by God because we know him. That's what they're saying. They're claiming to know God. They're claiming the very thing Jesus told them earlier in the chapter they don't have. She said, you don't know God, you don't know heaven, you don't know my Father. And they're saying, yeah, we do. What's going on here? Let's ask this question, because I don't think they're lying, per se. I mean, they're lying to themselves, but I don't think they're lying. And hear this. Oh, Going back to this book I read, and I think a lot of the claims that Ernest Becker makes are really biblical, and we can talk about that another time. But this idea that we're all trying to escape this existential dread that awaits this truth of our mortality, death, and we set up these idols, is what the Bible would call them, but he calls them in his book immortality projects, or just pleasure that we can jump to and hold to, or falling in love, a love that will distract us from the pain of this world. We all have these things that we live for, and you know what? What does the scriptures say? Uh, the devil masquerades as an angel of light. The things that we think will satisfy us we have a way, we have a way, hear this, we have a way of attaching a spiritual truth to those things. And we have a way of thinking that those things that we think will satisfy us are spiritually light. 
okay? We have a way of thinking that these things, these idols that we've created or idols that we've attached ourselves to, these dreams that we have, these aspirations, we have ways of thinking that this is almost a spiritual thing. We're not spiritually blind. I have this dream. I have this love. I have this hope. And there's a message that cries out, all flesh and their glory is all going to pass. And that's what Jesus is trying to do here. You're going to die. Do you want to know how you're a slave? You don't think you're a slave? I'll tell you you're a slave. The slave has no permanent place in the family. It's what he'd been saying already. This thing that you've set your hope to, is it going to save you from death? Is it going to save you from the death that is definitely coming? Are you aware of that? Have you reckoned that? Have you made sense of that? Don't push it away. Don't push it away. You got something that you think is worth living for apart from God? These glory days will pass you by and they will leave you with nothing. Wake up. Wake up. That's the plea. Jump ahead. Verse 51. Jesus, he's saying it again. Very truly, I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. Keep going. The, the phrase is they'll never taste death. Never see death, never taste death. There's a truth. There's a Christian truth that brings deep freedom and deep enlightenment and peace and something that we're supposed to meditate on and know. Death will never touch us. We'll never taste it. I mean, you keep reading John chapter 11. Jesus says, even though they die, they won't really die. Those who believe in me, even though they die, they don't really die. They don't really die. I don't know what that is experientially. I suppose it might be like what you read in Acts chapter 7, I think, when they kill Stephen. They see him killed but he sees the glory of God as he's dying. There's no sting, as the scriptures say. Oh, death, where is your sting? There's no sting in death for the Christian. We don't die. We don't die. And this is a truth that Jesus wants us to receive. And I think the idea is that it will set you free. Whoever knows the truth, the, the truth will set them free. It will set you free from this thing that Ernest Becker won the Pulitzer Prize for describing this existential fear of death that drives so many of the choices that we make in the lives that we live. It sets you free in a, in a deep way. And Ernest Becker, he, he, he didn't invent all this. I mean, he took ideas from great minds like Sigmund Freud and Soren Kierkegaard. And you can go back and Read the book of Hebrews. Jesus came to set free those who live in fear of death. And many people, many people don't live in fear of death. The Bible calls it slavery, the slavery to fear of death. And it's like very few people. But the idea is underneath, there's something going on there. There's something going on in what Sigmund Freud would call the unconscious. There's something going on. Something going on deep down. And there's something that is driving you in ways you don't realize. And you know that, that dread, that, that, that sense? There's something that people are trying to avoid and why they cling to the things they cling to. 
And Jesus is saying here, nothing will work but whoever obeys my word, whoever receives me, whoever believes in me, they'll never taste death. Hear that. Let's just close up John chapter 8. I'll, I'll read this part. And this is the end of the chapter. Jesus replied, If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not yet 50 years old, they said to him. And you have seen Abraham? Very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. At this they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Okay, maybe you know a little bit of the Old Testament of what just happened here when God first appeared to the people of Israel, to Moses. What, what should I call you? What's your name? Says, I am. My name is I am. Call me I am. And that's where we get uh, Yahweh, the Old Testament, whenever you see in the Old Testament, the Lord in all capital letters, it's, it's Yahweh. It means I am. And this is like today, like Orthodox Jews refer to this as the name. They won't say it. They won't say it. For it's too holy, uh, don't take the name of the Lord in vain. They won't say it. And that's how it was back then. No one said this name. No one. And here Jesus is saying, before Abraham was, I am. Some people say that Jesus never claimed to be God. Wrong. That's what's happening right here. That's why it re in English it reads kind of weird. Okay, before Abraham was, I am. That, that reads weird in English because in the translation it reads weird also unless you understand what Jesus is doing. He's saying, I am. The I am, that's me. And what does I am mean? What does I am communicate? Well, one of the big things is eternal self-existence. Many people are defined by where they came from. You know, so-and-so, son of so-and-so in the Bible, it's like where they came from. But with God, he's not defined that way because he is. It's not from, from everlasting to everlasting. And this is perhaps the hardest thing for us mortals to wrap our minds around when it comes to the truth of God. He has no beginning, and he certainly will have no end. And this is the truth that Jesus is drawing people's attention to. Know me, the eternal one. Whatever you've set up as your life's goal for immortality, for a legacy that will live on, for a love that will draw you uh, and take away the pain that life brings with it and the fears that you might have. Whatever you've set as what the Bible would call an idol, something to focus on, you're going to die. It's not going to work. The grass withers. The flowers, they fall. But I am. That's what you look to, because those who know him, those who know God as I am and Jesus will never taste death, just as I am will never taste death. Uh, you know what? I thought I would end today by just reading. I quoted uh, Isaiah a handful of times, and Isaiah was certainly writing about Jesus. I thought I would just read those eight verses. I'm going to read it kind of slow. And we can think about that. 
what Isaiah was saying. It was, what, 700 years before Jesus? Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, and every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All people are like grass, and their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall. But the word of our God endures forever. Father God, help us lift up our eyes from temporary things and set the eyes of our hearts on eternity, on you, the I am, the eternal one. Lord, help us see that our life apart from you is darkness. Help us see and wake up from the fact that our hopes apart from you are destined and definite to fail and end. And help us set our eyes on the glory that will never fade and will never come to an end. Uh, we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, now we're going to move into a time of Q&A. Uh, for those in person, Martin has a microphone, so please just lift your hand if you have a question that you'd like to ask, and he'll come over with the microphone. Uh, if you are at home or here in person and just a little shy to speak into the microphone, just go ahead and text the number that's on the screen, and uh, we'll get into some questions. Anybody in the room have a question just yet? Okay, well, we'll take one from the text line. Charlie, where are people who died between now and the second coming of God? Where are they? Mm -hmm. uh, well, the, my understanding is that, I mean, what Jesus, he talked about, uh, sometimes he used the term like Abraham's bosom, as in gathered to his people, you know, there, there is a fellowship. When I say that we will never die, what I mean is, our fellowship with Jesus will never be broken, even for an instant. We will know him. He will know us. We will have relationship. The relationship will not stop. So for those who died now in Christ, uh, what the Bible would call they've fallen asleep, as in their body's fallen asleep, but their spirit is, is awake. Fellowship hasn't ended. But... Um, now, the way that it seems to me is, although those who are uh, asleep in Christ, though they are alive in relationship, they are not, uh, they don't have a body right now. Because at the end of the story, at the end of the Bible, there is a resurrection of the flesh. And, and this is true for both uh, the resurrection of the just and the unjust. There is a resurrection of all people before the day of judgment, um, and, and forever we will dwell with the Lord in the flesh. 
those who believe in him here um, in a renewed earth that's different. It's here, but it will be different. The lion will lay down with the lamb. It'll be the end of bloodshed, you know, the end of, of, of many things. The, the world will look different. I don't know the details of that. But the big difference between now, those who are believers and have died now, and then, what it seems to me is, though they are alive now, uh, now they are alive in a spiritual sense, but then they will have a body once again. So that's, that's the fullness of my understanding. That's encouraging. Another question here. When the Bible says, keep my word and you will not see death, what does word mean? What does it mean? Does it mean something we do or does it mean simply to believe in him? Such a good question. And it definitely doesn't mean... I have a list of things you need to do if you fail at any of these things. Like, it's not a new law in that sense. Simply what it means is to keep his word means, he uses words interchangeably. He'll also say, abide in me, keep my word, uh, keep my teaching, believe in me. Like, these words are used interchangeably because they mean the same thing. It means to look to him above all else. It means to lift up your eyes from what the Bible would call your idols, and to put him first. Those who believe in him means, it means, Lord, it's an attitude, it's a heart attitude that says, God, I'm a sinner and I need you. And you wake up the next day and you're like, Lord, I still need you. What are you saying to me? Um, it's, it's a heart posture before God that is always looking to him. Always, and when we fall down, it's getting back up. It simply means a heart posture where we receive his word rather than push it away. Sometimes the best way to understand something is to look at the opposite. Um, the opposite is where you see sometimes in the Bible people stopping up their ears. Like, I don't want to hear this. I don't want to hear this. Oh, there's a level of truth coming here. I'm going to walk away. I don't want to hear this. I don't want to hear this. It's doing the opposite of that. And it's allowing God's word to find its place in our heart. Let it come through. Sometimes when we receive his word, there might be things that God's word tells us to do. Sometimes we do that with mixed success. Sometimes we fail. It's not about whether you fail or not. It's about have you received his word? Have you allowed it into your heart? Have you allowed it to grow as the seed that it is? Or have you said, no, not here. This is my life. Um, I don't want that. What would you say to someone who's feeling convicted about a particular ambition or something that they feel is an idol in their life and uh, they don't necessarily know how to approach um, being free from that or how to ask God for that? That's a good question because that's common in the Christian life, isn't it? The difference between the believer and the non-believer when it comes to sin in your life can really be summarized with you know, the biblical word confession. And if you're coming from a Catholic background and you're thinking, oh, I need to like sit down with a priest, like get that out of your head. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is you saying to God, help me, Lord. I've noticed that I've sinned in my life. I don't know how to stop. I don't know what to do with it. I don't want to be ruled by idols. I don't want to live as a sinner, but I don't know how to stop. It's just telling God what he already knows, but you acknowledging it. Okay, that's once more, you can, you can understand something by looking at the opposite. The opposite is the person who, okay, well, maybe the Bible says this thing I'm doing is a sin, but uh, everyone knows I'm a good person. I have my own plan. I'm not going to give that to God. I'm not going to confess that. I'm not going to acknowledge that God's word is true and that I am wrong. Really, we're just simply talking about 
in acknowledgement. And, and once more, it comes down to the heart that looks to God and says, Lord, help me. Lord, save me. Um, I have sin in my life. Save me. It's a, once more a heart posture. And so I would say confession. Confess it to God. And perhaps confess it to someone else. Sometimes that can really, really be helpful in bringing forth healing. That's what James seems to say. You know, confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. But when it comes to salvation, your salvation is not dependent on you telling someone else. That can be really helpful, okay? It can be really helpful to get you free, but it's about Jesus. It's about your relationship with him. So I would say confess that to him and ask him to work in your heart to to save you, to help you. Amen. Any questions in the room? All right, we're getting plenty on the text line. I'm going to combine these next two questions because I think they're related. The first one is, what is heaven on earth? And the second one is, um, when we confess our sins, they are forgiven, but we don't truly stop sinning. So my question is, when will we stop sinning? Would that be after Jesus comes back and judges and condemns the world? Then will we, we believers be glorified and from then on won't be able to sin again? Okay, a lot there. Uh, what is heaven on earth? Uh, we could have a long conversation. There's a question that you could ask, like, is heaven on earth here now? And the, the answer is yes and no. How is it here yet, now, and how is it not here yet? It's here now in the hearts of God's people who believe in him and worship him. Um, in this way, the kingdom of God has come upon you. It's here now when people, out of love for God, serve one another, lay down their lives, help one another in, in lots of ways. We can see heaven on earth. We can see a, what the Bible might call a foretaste, like a, a glimpse a, 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 a foreshadow of what it's going to look like. So heaven on earth in some ways is here now when people live lives of love um, with Christ, by the power of Christ who lives within them. The kingdom of God is here now in that sense. So spiritually it's here. But there's a time coming when it will be here with power and glory. This is the end of the Bible. I saw the new city coming down like a bride adorned for her husband. This is the heavenly city, a physical reality that will be here on earth. At that time, the dead will be raised, as we talked about. New bodies. This is the hope that we have. And these new bodies that we will receive, there is something different about these new bodies that we're going to get. Now the scriptures say we see in part, then we will see fully. Now we see as, a, as, a, as in a dim mirror, then we will see fully. The more we see him, the more we will be like him. Now we still have sin because we don't see fully. We still have bodies that with them come temptations. That will not be so in the new city. When the dead are raised in Christ, when we are raised in him, we will be raised in glory, imperishable. Sin will be no more because temptation will be no more. Because we will know him fully as we are fully known. Uh, there's mysteries here that, and, and there's glories here that I can't understand in fullness. But I can tell you what the scriptures say. And that is what the scriptures say. Heaven is here now in the hearts of his people, but it is coming in a physical way. And all who look to him and believe in him now will be there forever in the flesh. And that is the Christian hope. Um, did I answer both parts of that question? I think you did. Okay. Did we, we cover people not sinning? 
Uh, well, well, yeah, we'll have new bodies without yeah. temptation. Okay. Yeah. Um, now we see dimly, but we will see fully. That's good. Because all sin comes from blindness. All sin comes from... Sin doesn't ever lead to joy. Hey, hey, I have this option for you. Would you like this thing that's not going to make you happy and it's going to make you sad and it's going to cause pain? No one is going to say, yeah, sure, I'll take that. But we do that all the time when we sin. And the reason why is because we're not seeing clearly. Okay? We're going to see clearly. And so we're not going to sin because sin comes from once more. It comes from blindness. Yeah. That's good. So this will be the last question. Can you elaborate on the story of the woman Jesus freed? You said it wasn't originally part of the gospel. Does that mean it never happened? Yeah, you can go and research that for yourself. There's a little bit of a dialogue. There's good reason to believe, unfortunately, for those who love the story, that it is not, it wasn't actually part of John's um, message. And this goes back like, like very, very early, early Christians, even like who came across this, sometimes said, hey, I don't think this is actually scripture. Where is this coming from? Um, the oldest manuscripts, many of them don't have it. And so there's good reason to believe it wasn't actually written by John. Interestingly, some of the language, like the language, and it says like the scribes and the Pharisees came to Jesus. That's the language that you often see in what's called the Synoptic Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John never uses that phrase. There's some things that uh, makes people wonder maybe um, it was taken from something else. Um, anyways, and there's also reason to think that the encounter actually did happen because, uh, if I remember, there's a historian, a 4th century historian who's quoting a 2nd century historian who refers to this story. Um, he seems to refer to the story. So there's a lot. There's, it's a long dialogue. And it might have actually happened. And maybe it was even written by John. It's not completely impossible that John originally wrote it. And that's exactly where it was. But there's good reason to question it. But once more, for the sake of our walking with Jesus, it doesn't matter. Because everything we see in this story, we see in other ways. The heart of Jesus that comes through in this story, we see it in other ways. Sometimes as I'm up here, I'll tell stories, illustrations to make a point. Maybe it never happened. Maybe it's an illustration. Maybe it did happen. Either way, I think it communicates the truth of who God is. But if you're curious, go and do your own reading. Um, it's, uh, there's, there's also a part, if you're curious, the end of the book of Mark shares some similarities of, of, you'll see a bracket there also that people will say, this probably wasn't in the early manuscripts, including the stuff about like handling snakes and <laughs> drinking poison. So that's a whole side conversation. If you're in one of those churches where you pass around poisonous snakes, <laughs> you should probably be aware that probably isn't in the oldest manuscripts, but we don't that's do a whole that other here? conversation. We don't do that We here? don't do that anymore? Did, did we? Oh. As far as I know. <laughs> I, I, I think that's okay. really helpful, though. Thanks yeah, for the clarity yeah. on that. Yeah. It really is. Would you mind uh, closing this up in prayer? Yeah, sure, sure. Right on. Father God, once more, I would ask that you would grant our eyes the ability to see. The ability to see uh, the the temporal nature of the things that we so easily set our hearts on and help us lift up our eyes and get a taste of the infinite joy of you, the I am, the great I am, Lord. And help us know that as long as we have our eyes on you, the great I am, we will never taste death. Help us know that and rejoice. In your name, Jesus, amen.